You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. It's Spain and Fitz. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz with you on a Tuesday night on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80. We got another packed day of news. Lots to get to. Breaking news, uh, new uh, things to discuss in the golf world, particularly that are pretty nuanced and challenging, but we're going to try to dive as deep into that as we can and get you some updates on that live golf presser. A lot of people commenting on that today on social. And, of course, we're going to start with the biggest potential breaking news of the day, another report on Deshaun Watson. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, let's give you the Straight Talk, brought to you by Straight Talk Wireless. Jenny Vrentis, who's done an incredible job of reporting on this, Fitz, since the beginning, uh, just came out with a new New York Times piece uh, that included... First of all, a number of uh, women who are not involved in any civil or criminal suit that still uh, elected to share experiences with Deshaun Watson for this story. It included um, some research and, and reporting on text messages, phone calls between Watson's lawyer and the prosecutor that would have been seeking indictment, um, and really adds just more to what is becoming a mounting and an and ever larger hill that, that uh, to be honest, I, I don't imagine that the Browns uh, saw coming. Now, that may be giving them too much credit. Perhaps they know about all of this already, somehow, some way. Maybe Rusty Harden knows about all of it and is, has presented it, and they said, eh, we don't care. But I think that they anticipated that the refusal of indictment and the end of the criminal cases, at least those specific cases, that doesn't protect him from further and future ones. But I think that they thought that would sort of be a little bit when this died down with the occasional bump at the beginning of training camp, at the beginning of the season, etc. And there's just been a continued stream of new information pretty much since the day they announced him. If the Cleveland Browns didn't know, they have nobody but themselves to blame. If the NFL didn't know, they have nobody but themselves to blame. We live in a world where organizations send private investigators out to find every ounce of information about a draft pick that exists. They, they follow people. They talk to family members. They dig into everything. When the NFL or the NFL teams want to get information, frankly, they do. So if Jenny, who's done, to your point, a spectacular job reporting on this, is able to get this information, that tells me the NFL could have also gotten every ounce of this if they chose to. If the NFL or the Browns want to claim that they didn't know any of these new allegations, or they didn't talk to any of these people, they have no one but themselves to blame, and there should be accountability for that within this process. You can only see so much information before eventually you look squarely at the National Football League and you look squarely at the Browns and you say, what did you know? When did you know it? Who did you talk to? And what the hell were you thinking letting it get to this point and presuming that everybody else was just going to put our bury our heads in the sand and pretend that we're all ignorant? That obviously is not going to happen here. And at some point, accountability not just comes to Deshaun Watson. It comes to everybody else involved in this process that has allowed him to be traded, allows him to be on a new roster, allows him to be an active participant within the National Football League. Let's talk about some of the things that came out in particular in this story, Fitz, because I'm hearing people say it's the same as everything else. It's just a few more. What's the big difference? Well, first of all, I would argue that so many people have said that the allegations against Watson were inconsequential because they must be money grabs. Okay, again, there are several women and there have been women throughout this entire process who are neither suing him civilly nor charging him criminally. They're not asking for money. 
They only seek to have their story told and included with the women who are. There are people who have said, including his own lawyer, it's not illegal to go and try to get a happy ending during massage. It is, in fact, illegal. It's solicitation of prostitution. His lawyer has said just making people uncomfortable or pursuing them sexually during massage isn't illegal. It is harassment. It is exactly what some of these women said happened. And if you believe that Deshaun Watson, who met with at least 66 women for massages Mm. over a 17-month period, admits to what he calls consensual sex with at least three of them, and whose lawyer is now openly floating publicly on radio stations the idea that soliciting sex acts during massage is not bad. If you then think it ends there, and it would be impossible to imagine that there were times that he propositioned women and they were not interested and he forced himself on them. I'm not sure why that's the line that you think can be drawn. Why would it be so impossible to imagine that that's what was going on here, Fitz, particularly since we've already gotten from the very beginning when he said he was doing nothing but seeking out regular professional massages. They just happened to be from Instagram masseuse accounts. One was an esthetician. Some weren't even licensed. Didn't care about the quality. Said in his deposition that priority to him was not whether they were qualified or what their experience was at all. We went from there to now admitting, okay, well, maybe when he was going in, he was trying to get sex acts performed on him, but there's nothing illegal about that. I mean, we've taken a real leap already just in the months since this conversation started. Well, and remember, he maintains he did nothing wrong. And look, I've had a bunch of massages. I am certainly not a professional athlete, but I love getting a massage. I am so aware of the setting that I'm going to, yeah. making sure everybody's comfortable, making sure I'm comfortable, making sure that the people in the room seem like they're professional. Like, I, I think there's a real process, and I'm a nobody. If I'm Deshaun Watson, I understand everything that's on the line, and I also have to understand that, hey, I need to be above board. And when you read Jenny's uh, article, Jenny Rentes' article in the New York Times, there are so many stunning things here, w- whether it's the, the text that he has that, and the messages he has where he's creepily saying that he's just trying to support small minority-owned business, right? Like, that, that's in and of itself right. weird the way he brings it into the people that have then turned around and said, well, this is how he obviously views supporting that, to the businesses that he supported that flat out say, hey, I know how to get money out of a man. Like, you look at all of this and just the concern that you have to have from all of us of saying, okay, who is he talking to? Where is his compass in any of this? How does everybody around him continue to insulate him? Like there are so many different problems in this. And the more people that come forward that are not to your point, Sarah, not part of a lawsuit that are not necessarily sitting here trying to get anything other than saying, well, yeah, I mean, that's what he did. He made me uncomfortable. Like that takes away. If your argument is money grab, that argument has been destroyed time and time again. If your argument is fame grab, that argument has been destroyed time and time again. I want somebody to make a compelling argument that proves why he deserves benefit of the doubt that doesn't involve either of those things because the evidence doesn't support those things. So there has to be, if you want to believe he's innocent, tell me how all of this has gotten to this point. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. One thing you didn't mention, Watson asked a Texans employee to draft an NDA for him. And he began taking an NDA to massages. Quote, one to a woman who said in her lawsuit that she ended the session after he suggested a sexual act. Watson told her she had to sign the NDA in order for him to pay 
So she did, according to her filing. Bringing NDAs to massages. Why would you do that if you had any, if you had every intention of just getting a massage like everybody else? And you could argue, if you're really working hard to defend him, it's because he's a famous athlete and he needs to be careful in these situations, right? Um, but man, that's a stretch. And then I, this part about the conversation he had with the prosecutor, Joanna or Jonna Stallings. Harris County sex crimes prosecutor handling the investigation in the two months before two different Texas grand juries heard the criminal cases against Watson. Stallings and Watson's lawyer, Rusty Hardin, met at Hardin's office, spoke over the phone 12 times, and exchanged more than two dozen text messages, according to public records. Also, in March of 2021, as Stallings prepared to present her case against Watson to the Harris County grand jury, she and Hardin exchanged more than a dozen calls and messages during the week of the hearing. That's gotta stand out to you just one just one message by the way between her and and the lawyer representing all of those women over the course of that same time was found there's so many different problems with this and at some point you got to look at the evidence not 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 confirmation bias not trying to get what we believe supported just look at the evidence you cannot look at the evidence in this and say it's not problematic and the only thing i'll quickly add sarah when it comes to the nda conversation there have been athletes in the past that have said that they get NDAs before massages because they want to make sure that if they're battling injury, that injury is not made public. I have never talked to or heard of an athlete that has done that after a massage. When that is part of the process, right. it is always something that from day one is explained. Hey, this is the way the process goes. If you're comfortable with it, I'd like a massage. It's not a after I've made you uncomfortable, you must now sign this in exchange for payment. Mm -hmm. That is so wrong on so many stinking levels and it, it just out it, the, the outrage here should be there from everybody yeah absolutely it's spain and fitz sarah spain jason fitz straight talk wireless no contract no compromise of course lots of tentacles of that including the texans involvement does that in any way affect the contract for the browns what's the language in the contract do the browns still have any possible out uh, when it comes to the guaranteed money and the length of the deal all of that still up in the air. Coming up, the Live Golf Series starts this week. The financial and moral ramifications of this run deep. We'll explain next. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. We're presented by Progressive Insurance. Happy birthday to Prince, one of the greatest influences in my musical life. I always mm -hmm. love to take this day and celebrate him every single year. So you'll hear a lot of prints today over the course of the next couple of hours. One of the biggest stories that we saw today actually came from the world of golf. And I'm going to be the first to admit to you guys that I'm glad that I work with somebody that's incredibly brilliant like Sarah. Because sometimes hey, these issues get really difficult for me to wrap my head around. And we spent most of our pre-show meeting trying to figure out the ins and outs of why the U.S. Open has decided that Phil Mickelson, Dustin Johnson, and the rest of the golfers that have already announced are going to take part in the Live Golf Invitational will also be invited to play at the Open next week. So we're going to get some insight from this from one of our favorites, Christine Brennan, who earlier today tweeted, to the surprise of absolutely no one, the USGA fails miserably to meet the moment. Golf leaders talk about honor and principle and values, then cave completely when they should make a stand how history will judge them. And she's written several columns I recommend you check out. Christine, I just want to start right there because I thought that was so powerful. In your mind, what should USGA have done in this instance? Well, great to talk with both of you. Thanks uh, for having me on, as always. And 
what I believe should have happened is the USTA, uh, which is, by the way, a nonprofit uh, for the good of the game. We know those commercials for the good of the game, Saudi blood money, <laughs> um, that it should have kicked out uh, anyone who is uh, in business now with murderers, with the with the people who murdered and dismembered uh, Jamal Khashoggi, the Washington Post columnist back in 2018. That's what this is all about. And shouldn't have let them play next week. This is obviously the time is running short. The, the U.S. Open, the men's Open is at the Country Club in Brookline in Boston, uh, Massachusetts, just next week. So they had to make a decision. And I think they completely wimped out uh, the U.S. Golf Association. Um, and I think it goes back to the fact that this sport uh, is just so, um, uh, has been so terrible on cultural issues. Uh, run by rich white men and the occasional rich white woman, it, you know, it's allowed and even encouraged discrimination against black people and women for decades. Uh, still golf courses in America where a woman will be kicked off the property if she sets foot on the grounds. Um, and uh, it, it just has been so horrible on those kinds of issues that it doesn't even have the moral compass to begin to do the right thing uh, at this time at this incredible you know, controversy, it's just, you know, just uh, swallowing up the entire sport. And so they just punt, you know, they're like, no, we're not going to do anything. We're just, everything's fine, uh, which is just such a terrible, terrible message. Um, and even if you say, and I know I'm sure some golf fans, well, these guys already qualified. It's the middle of the process, right? You can't change the rules after the game has started. Okay. Then you know what? Um, if you had to let them in because they qualify, which I completely disagree with, but uh, if you had to, then how about say something like, you know what, uh, from now on, uh, no one is allowed in. They, we are literally going to kick, if you're, if you're in business with Khashoggi, the people who kill Khashoggi, you will not be able to play in any future USGA event. They didn't do anything like that. And, and that, I think, again, it's a huge missed opportunity, but it is so, so in keeping, frankly, guys, with the um, horrible social uh, justice or lack thereof rec- record of uh, golf and in particular the leadership of golf. Yeah, Christine, I mean, if you look at the PGA, they're willing to work with China, who has their own record on human rights issues. If you look at golf in general, as you mentioned, their past in terms of racism and sexism, this isn't a battle for the moral high ground, I guess, but this is something that requires a definitive line. And in Fitz and I, before the show, we're trying to articulate the responsibility that comes with putting on sport, benefiting from sport, profiting from sport in a way that these leagues, PGA, USG, all these things do. And I do think while it's difficult to ask this kind of leadership to speak on these really nuanced and complicated issues, they can't shirk the responsibility the way they have. There still has to be an effort to say there's accountability for decision-making by these players. What would you have liked to see from them in, in terms of the USGA, but also from the PGA? Yeah, you know, it's, um, so it's, it's, this is a conversation that we've had before and we're going to have again. You know, the, the people who did it right, what, six months ago now, was the Women's Tennis Association. Right? That, that basically said, because of the Peng Shui Me Too controversy, uh, where, of course, she was missing, a great tennis star in China missing for a while, and then uh, and it was, it was right after she had put on their social media that she was sexually assaulted, by a uh, former high-ranking official in China and that whole drama that played out. The WTA said, we're just taking our tournaments out of China. I mean, that is, 
uh, you know, the moral high ground. That is guts. That is courage. And that will be remembered when people are studying sports and cultural history 50 years from now. They'll be talking about the WTA and what it did near the end of 2021. That was magnificent. Golf, completely the opposite. Caving left and right. Um, no, no spine, no courage. I do see a difference. You know, you, you brought up a lot of very important points. Like, for example, you didn't say, but the NBA, you know, all these people on, on Twitter, you know, write about the NBA and, <laughs> and, uh, and LeBron or, uh, you know, in China and Hong Kong a few years ago, the Dale Morey story. Well, of course I did. I guess no one can Google right. to find that out. They oh, just have to yeah. tweet that out. Always. Of course. And wait a minute. Now, who is the person in February who was in China for a month, ripping the Chinese and the Russians? And everything? Oh, I think I think that actually was me. Yeah, right. that was me while in China. And right. so, of course, I never reply to anyone on Twitter. But people, you know, use Google before you go crazy. Because, of course, <laughs> I've, I've talked and written about all that, as so many of us, as you guys have. These are issues that are so important we need to discuss. I do see a difference. What, what is happening with Dustin Johnson and obviously Phil Mickelson and Sergio Garcia, they are actually in business with, they're not just going to play for a tournament for a week. They are now right. actually helping MBS because it's fun. Yeah. Right. It's, it's sports washing. It's whitewashing, helping them burnish their image, helping them with PR, giving them credibility, everything they need, everything that... The, the awful leadership, uh, the terrible, rep, uh, reprehensible leadership of Saudi Arabia needs after killing Khashoggi in 2018. Everything they need to be, come back to society, to be given, given um, you know, great pu- public relations and a great boost and, and have big names around them saying, hey, this is okay, this is good. Um, and giving them, uh, again, that, uh, everything that they need in terms of moving forward uh, and whitewashing all of the bad sports washing, as it's now being called. That's what Phil Mickelson is doing. It is so different from someone going to the Chinese Olympics, you know, play, playing a sport in, in, at the Beijing Olympics, or someone buying gas for your car, or even someone playing in one tournament somewhere else. These guys are now, this is a life decision. They, they were playing golf on PGA. They had a place to play, and they have turned that down to go and be in business with murderers. Christine, we appreciate your time. Go check her out on Twitter, at Sports. Always great work from you. Thanks so much for hanging out Thanks with us and giving us the expertise. My pleasure, guys. Take care. Have a good night. I recommend you read it, y'all. It's, it's important reading. It's smart reading. It'll make you smarter in the way you, you see the entire issue. We'll keep covering it and more coming up. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. It's Spain and Fitz on Prince's birthday on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz with you. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. You could shake whatever things are not connected to your mouth because we need you to do this interview. Uh, So whatever you need to do with the rest of your body parts is fair game, especially since we're not in the same room and I won't have to watch your terrible dancing. little chair wiggling. Yeah, all that. Uh, Points Bet USA senior <laughs> editor, former Chicago Tribune columnist Teddy Greenstein joins us now. He's got a new book out titled Quarterback Dads, Wild Tales from the Field. Teddy, thanks for joining us. Let's just start by impressing people with some of the names that you got for this book, because as you're going to tell us these wild tales, I think people will be uh, intrigued to know some of the folks you got to chat with you. Yeah, what is up, Sarah and Jason? Thanks for having me. So when I decided to do the book, my first two goals were Archie Manning and Todd Marinovich because I felt like 
they represented the two ends of the spectrum, right? Because Marinovich was turned into a science experiment by his father, Marv. And Archie Manning is like the ultimate quarterback dad, not only because his kids have won Super Bowls and they're great on the Manning cast, but, you know, he really tailored his fathering style based on the personality of his kids, which is totally different. But then I also got Warren Moon, spent a bunch of time with Kurt Warner at his, basically he lives at a resort, like his backyard in Scottsdale has a 50-yard football field. That was probably pretty helpful during the pandemic. Chris and Phil Sims, Joel Klatt, Brady Quinn, another Fitz, Pat Fitzgerald, Brett Bielema. So we got a, a lot of coaches, a lot of trainers, um, and then a lot of like juniors that you will be hearing about. Guys will be on your TV screen the next five or ten years. Thanks for bringing up uh, Tom Marinovich as a lifelong diehard Raiders fan. That doesn't bring up any hurt for me at all, uh, Teddy. Great I really appreciate that. There. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, so anytime somebody writes a, an interesting book, there's always a, a motivation. So what were you hoping to, to discover in this process? Yeah, you know, it starts with Donovan Dooley. So he's the quarterback trainer who I worked with. And uh, he's out of Detroit. And one time Donovan was overhearing these parents that are bitching and they're like, oh, you know, my kid would have had five touchdown passes if not for the receiver dropping balls or not for the offensive coordinator. So he got so fed up with it that he decided to distribute three by five index cards to all of his, all of his students, all of his juniors. And he said, kids, go ahead and write something on here that you wish your parents could see. Because right now they're just, they're just way too intense. They're just not seeing you know, what it should be. So some of the kids wrote stuff like, I'm not starting because of you and you know it. Um, yeah. Mom, you don't know football. Stop. Coach yeah. hates you. Now I have no shot. So Donovan then was motivated to find an author to work with, and that author ended up being me. So it really starts with him wanting quarterback dads to chill the bleep out, as he likes to say it. And I was motivated to do the book because it's football. It's the most intriguing position. Everybody wants to know who's next, and I am the father of daughters who play soccer. So I'm kind of in the youth sports game myself. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. We're talking to Teddy Greenstein, Points Bet USA, senior editor, former columnist for the Chicago Tribune. The book is called Quarterback Dad's Wild Tales from the Field. Um, on your website, Jim McCarthy, his son JJ is trying to be the starter at Michigan, uh, says of uh, quarterback dads, instead of calling them bad, he would call them uneducated. And is yep. that what you mostly found, that most of them want the most for their kids? Most of them are coming from a place of goodness, and then maybe the occasional one is living vicariously through them or is, is truly unhinged, but most are just not educated <clears throat> enough to know how to do it right? Yes, yeah, sir. That's so much of it. And, and, like, a big point I make in the book is, like, let's not demonize these dads because, like, we have a much bigger problem in this country of absenteeism, so dads who are not around – these are the opposite. These are the helicopter dads. These are the ones that are too involved. Like, I spoke to a father-son team in Detroit, and the son wears a fake arm tattoo sleeve to his games, and he wears customized cleats, and there's already a three-minute highlights package of him, courtesy of his dad on Facebook. And, oh, I'm sorry, the kid is seven years old, and his dad swears he's going to play in the NFL. And we have another one who, you know, the dad says he's going to be the LeBron James of football. And maybe he will be, because this kid is, is named Bryce Underwood, and he's the top-ranked ninth grader in the country. But generally speaking, these dads need to throttle it back a little bit. Remember it's a game. Remember it's supposed to be fun. Like, you don't want your kid, when he throws an incompletion, 
to be looking over at you. That's a sign that you are overly involved. You want them just to be listening to his quarterback coach or a head coach or, you know, just focusing on the next play. It's wild when I hear you describe it that like that. And that that does make me think of the way parents in general treat referees, officials, um, all of it. I mean, I I don't know why anybody takes that job anymore, Teddy. Like, Mm -hmm. you have to be a special glutton for punishment, and I wonder what the future looks like. So how big of a problem is that portion of this conversation as well from your research? Yeah, I mean, so I'm a soccer dad. Unfortunately, we are pretty good about not riding refs. Like, if I see a handball, I'll usually just hold my hand up or maybe I'll say offside. But I try not to ride these guys because I realize they're doing the best they can. But, yeah, we have a lot of people in the book. Um, I think, you know, Phil Sims has mentioned it and um, Rick Neuheisel has mentioned it, that you just cannot believe the stuff that parents say. That is just totally embarrassing. Just sit in the corner Say it under your breath. Don't be harassing them. Like, we also get dads who, in workouts, are saying stuff to their kids like, hey, if you don't complete this next pass, you're not getting dinner. I mean, you, you got to get dads. you got to chill out a little bit. And that, that extends to, like, the ride home after the game. Like, you don't want to be, like, peppering your kid with questions. I usually ask Ellen Emmy, I'll start with, like, with an open-ended question. What did you think of the game? And if they don't want to talk about it, we will talk about anything else they want. Right. Maybe they'll bring it up later when they've cooled off a little or have questions or actually, you know, can have a conversation about it. It's Teddy Greenstein. You can follow him at Teddy Greenstein on Twitter. He's with us here on Spain and Fitz talking about his book, Quarterback Dad's Wild Tales from the Field. As for as many features as we see, and we see them across uh, women's sports as well, where especially now that, you know, video is so much more ubiquitous than when we were growing up, there's always... Right. You know, the the dad and the kid, and you've got tape going back to when they were young, working on their passing or dribbling or anything else, and then they grow up to be great, and everyone says, wow, how cool is that relationship? How important was that parent to their success? You also have the reverse, the ones who burn out, the ones who, you know, have resentment forever because of that relationship, the fallout that happens to teammates like me who used to get phone calls from one of my teammates' dads to tell me what we should be running if we're getting double teamed and he's not a coach, (laughs) right? Who was paying his daughter to keep her scoring average up, even if it meant not passing it to her teammates. I mean, it can get absolutely disastrous. So... What are you hoping when people read this book they find in terms of balance? Because my parents weren't into sports, and I do wish that, like, one of them had been really great at basketball or track or whatever I did, and it helped me along a little more. I was on my own, but I'm also grateful that I didn't, you know, despise them for that. It's so true. I mean, I played soccer and tennis, and I wish there was some video that existed of one of my matches or one of my games, but right. there's absolutely like nothing. Proof. And now I was it's good. Out to, like, like Don, Donovan Dooley will show me a text he received, and the text says, hey, my kid needs some more stats. Ask the coach why he pulled him out in the third quarter. And Donovan says, and this is from a mom. So it's like, I think because of NIL and because of just all the money involved, like so many of these parents are looking for ROI, that return on investment, where they are like, all right, if I'm sinking all this money in and I'm flying my kid all around the country to quarterback camps and I'm hiring and firing these trainers, the least we can get out of it is a full ride. But When you think of it that way, man, you're taking the joy out of it and you're putting so much pressure on your kid. Now, sometimes it works. We have examples in this book of this kid named Trey Taylor. So he lives an hour north of me in Chicago. He's already been offered by the University of Maryland, guys. He's in the seventh grade. 
And wow. he is as cute as can be. He's a mini Patrick Mahomes. He's smart. He's personable. And his dad is a pretty intense QB dad. So I think the overall lesson is you got to know your kid because some are going to really bristle at it. Some, you know, like Todd Marinovich, you know, kind of got ruined from it. Um, and then others probably want a lot more guidance and video and all that kind of stuff. Well, hear me out, though, Teddy. And uh, real quick before we let me go, we let, we let you yeah. go because we live in a world where, like, I, I watched I watched Dance Moms a few years ago, and, and I think you, yep. you look at the way the dance community is treated. And, like, I see music kids all the time that are now 12 or 13, and if they don't have a YouTube following, they're behind. Like, is this a sports yep. problem or is this a societal problem with parents trying to overdrive their kids for ROI? No question. By the way, Jason, every time I walk up to the living room, that freaking Dance mom show is on, and I just say, how many seasons did they make of this show? <laughs> Too and many. I found out Too that my little Emmy is, is, is re-watching it, and I want to throw something at the TV, but no question. I mean, I think because of social media, um, everybody just wants to be out there. And look, some social media is good. Like, if you've got a good football player, 12 or 13 years old, create an account, because that's the way he's going to get invited to camps. And if he gets invited to camps, Coaches are going to see him. So you don't have to do that if you're Arch Manning, but you probably do have to do that if you're Adam and Kane Archer, a, a, a father-son duo I talked to who live on the border of Arkansas and Texas. So you just got to do it, but be reasonable. Don't go crazy with it. Don't be like Big Dave Uyunglele who tweets so relentlessly that DJ blocks him on Twitter. You don't. Uh, if your kid yeah. is blocking you on Twitter, that's probably a sign you're doing too much. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I hope the book is doing well. I saw Seth Myers was uh, telling everyone to get it for Father's Day. That's a decent <laughs> plug. Not too bad. Is that Northwestern connection? That is. I mean, my two fave celebs who have been kind enough to plug it are Rachel Nichols and Seth Myers. Rachel, I've known forever. We went to Northwestern together. Seth started following me on Twitter because he's a huge Northwestern sports fan. I ended up talking to him for some stories, got me backstage at his show. So, nice, man, and now he's dropping Myers. the book picks. I love exactly. it. Exactly, very it. nice of them to do that. Well, thanks for the time, Daddy. Good luck with the book. Thanks, Teddy. Sarah, Jason, thank you so much. Have a great night. Teddy Greenstein, Teddy Points was going to introduce me to Seth Myers. That's what I yeah, call Yeah, I know. Won't that, that be like, so nice that we'll be going yeah, backstage? Gonna, By yeah, the way, we, we forgot to ask, but we should have. I bet NIL makes parents even more insane when it comes to this stuff, right? Trying to yeah, get them sure. not just on the teams, but the deals and all the other stuff. ESPN Raiders presented by Progressive Insurance. Progressive can protect your home, auto, boat, motorcycle, ATV, RV, and more. In short, a lot of things. Bundle today at Progressive.com. Coming up, coaches getting fired across the world of sports. Who, you ask? Well, we'll tell you when we do quickies next. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Oh, no, let's go. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, getting you caught up on everything you need to know. By the way, we're only minutes away from the puck drop as the Stanley Cup playoffs continue uh, tonight. We will see how that one works out. It is on ESPN. You can tune in to ESPN tonight to get all of your hockey fix. Rangers taking on Tampa Bay. That, uh, like I said, uh, we'll start in just a few minutes. So we'll keep you updated on that on that as it goes. But before we get to any of that, it's time to have a little bit of fun. There's so much to get to. We're going to do it the way only this show can. It is time for some quickies. We will start, Sarah, with a little bit of baseball news. The L.A. Angels are in the middle of a 12-game losing streak. And now as a result, Joe Madden looking for a job. He has been uh, relieved of his duties. Phil Nevin named interim manager. So uh, un- uh, despite a remarkable start, Things haven't gone so well. You lose 12 in a row, you lose your job. So Joe Madden now sitting on the unemployment line. 
Yeah, it's a bummer for me because I obviously have fond feelings about Joe Madden. He's the guy who got my Cubs to the World Series. And while many will argue that he made bad decisions during that series, particularly during that Game 7, I tend not to be one who looks back after a result like winning your first World Series in 108 years (laughs) and nitpick about it. I tend to just be like, hell yeah, thank you. And I do think Madden's spirit and approach were really important to even keel not too stressed, like get some guys finally over that hump of the pressure that comes with trying to break like the longest streak in sports. Uh, So I'm always sad when, when things don't go well for him, but a lot of people would argue that he hasn't been the same coach in recent years, maybe got a little big for his britches. And because of that success uh, started to get wild with his decision-making and um, you know, if you, if you have a stretch like this and you already have somebody who's not fully confident that's going to be what happens as they try to bring a different voice or, or some sort of energy and save things. All I know is that nitpicking a World Series win is the most 2022 right. type thing. Yeah. Like I know oh, that, Mike, that is on, most After all we've modern been sports fan. Like, yeah. yeah, we won, but I don't know. All right, let's go to the next story on the list. And this one, I, you know, I this hurts my heart because I love Derek Fisher. Uh, Derek Fisher, somebody I've been a fan of as a player for a long time, but Derek Fisher has been fired as head coach of the WNBA Los Angeles Sparks. Uh, remember uh, that uh, Fisher obviously had a huge career with the Lakers, takes a gig with a lot of pressure in it, and the Sparks, there are expectations every single year. Assistant Fred Williams has been named the interim replacement, so uh, Coach Fisher has been relieved of his duties. He was the head coach and the GM there, so uh, we'll see what it means for their roster construction and for how they manage the game itself. But, again, it speaks to the expectations that exist in Los Angeles. I'll tell you, I'm not brokenhearted about this. I think this is long overdue. Uh, Derek Fisher benched Candace Parker in an elimination game. Derek Fisher has a history of it feeling like potentially there are beefs with players that inform his decision-making instead of what's best for the team. And a lot of people since very early on thought that he might not be the right fit for a WNBA team. And you've heard that throughout. Um, You know, he, he got them off to a great record in the first season, number three seed. And, um, I think just some of the stuff you've heard about that and and some of the stars on the team, it feels like this is overdue. Well, and you're certainly right that when he was hired, there was conversation about why him and why not somebody that was more qualified that may know the WNBA itself better. And uh, that I think that's a fair uh, statement. And last year, with the 12 and 20, I think is what they want to have to pull it back up. But uh, right. yeah, there were 12 and 20 last season. Uh, certainly a disappointment missed playoffs for the first time since 2011. So uh, Derek Fisher no longer going to be the head coach there, and uh, the Sparks will have to figure out. They have too much talent to be bad, right? So uh, there's no way that, in, in my mind, they can't uh, figure out a way to turn that around at least uh, quickly. Uh, that would be the hope uh, for what they're doing there. Let's go to the next story. And we got a little bit of Stanley Cup action here because the Colorado Avalanche decided that they don't like nice things uh, by letting the rest of us have Connor McDavid go to the Stanley Cup final. No, <laughs> the quest for Lord Stanley's Cup no longer involves the best player in the sport. Instead, mm. as I said on my sports beat the other day, maybe it involves the best team, and maybe we should have been paying attention to that all along. This is what it sounded like last night. Helm back from a car, lets it go, tipped on, rebound, score! It's Arturi Lekkanen! And you don't have to go home, but you can't stay here because this part 
party is over. Altitude 92.5 on the tremendous call. Do you think he had that one in the pocket? You, you, he was you ready. Can't stay yeah, he, he knew I, that was coming. By the way, I would tell you that hockey fans are not at all surprised and have been on the abs, uh, even more so than they've been on wanting to see McDavid. So no surprise to many who've been following Colorado all season long that they're this dominant. I don't think it's a surprise. I just think that a lot of casuals were excited for the opportunity oh, to see. Oh, for sure. That's, you know, yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's this moment, and, now and you all just the have Avalanche to have done. Get them hooked on the team instead of the player. Yeah, well, all the Avalanche have done throughout the course of this playoffs is, is really make everything look easy. You know, and mm-hmm. that that is a a statement to how good they've been from the outset. And I talked to one of my buddies when the playoffs first started and said. You know, that's been a long time Colorado fan. And, and I asked, I was like, is this a year? And he's like, well, when you root for the abs, you never think it's a year. But damn, it really feels like this is a year. And uh, now it feels like they certainly can feel good about where they're headed, especially knowing, you know, Rangers lightning starts at 8 p.m. on ESPN and ESPN plus. And now the abs are going to get a few days off while they can sit back, watch some hockey, heal up and uh, and let everybody else. Uh, the, if you're an abs fan right now, you're just hoping that whatever happens between the Rangers and the Lightning takes a really long time. That's all you care about at this mm-hmm. point. Absolutely. Well, and uh, again, that game is about to uh, the puck is about to drop on that. So uh, we'll see where that one goes uh, from there. Uh, I, you're right. I think Colorado is a great story. I just selfishly, you know, you can't you can't sit there and continually hear the best player in his sport, the LeBron of the NHL, and not think, well, man, maybe this is the year he gets there. And I think it does ramp up some pressure on Edmonton now, too. And we're having, I mean, we're talking hockey, but the fact that we're still talking about LeBron and the Lakers on all of our morning shows on ESPN tells you star power is the thing that drives debate and conversation. So you could be excited about the best team advancing, but until you could find those storylines where people know enough about a player to want to attach the way that we, like I said, are still talking about, like, could LeBron win and what will happen with the Lakers? Like, that's what you're looking for in some of these hockey stories. Tune in to the ESPN Daily Podcast. By the way, you can get great stories about everything there. They get you a deep dive into a single story from one of ESPN's hundreds of reporters presented by Supercuts. Download, subscribe, and review ESPN Daily Available wherever you enjoy your podcast. Make sure you get out there and check it out. They do a great job of covering the Stanley Cup playoff run in its entirety, by the way. If you haven't checked it out and you want to get to know everybody better, it's a good time to do that. In the meantime, the Deshaun Watson conversation isn't going away anytime soon. New developments we'll tell you about next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. It feels like almost every day we get a new breaking development in the story involving Deshaun Watson. And what we got today was a difficult read from the New York Times, but an important one that stresses not only so many people that are involved with this that we already knew about, but other victims and other accusers and other people that stand up and say, hey, this is what happened to me. And through the whole process, you also find out that there's a chance, it looks like, that the Texans may have known more than any of us knew. And the question is, how should all of this information be handled. It's Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, we're presented by Progressive Insurance. And Sarah, the New York Times uh, found that Deshaun Watson met with at least 66 women for massages in 17 months. I want to say that again. 66 women in 17 months. I believe it's actually 100, but they they managed to meet with. They managed to speak with. They managed to confirm those 66, which is even wilder. 
<laughs> and when you start talking about that, we're talking about above and beyond the we, we talked the other, yesterday about the 23rd and 24th lawsuit. I can't believe these numbers that I'm saying that are real, that for once for me are not a misspeak. And then you start thinking about all of the other people that weren't part of lawsuits that also were willing to tell their story and all of the other uh, implications that come through text messages and DMs. And you look across the board and you find out in this. And I think it's key, Sarah, that the Texans when they started to become aware that he may need an NDA, helped him with that process. They helped him come up with an NDA, a non-disclosure agreement, that he could take the massages because there had been incidents that they felt that they needed to do that. And did they say anything to the league? Did they say anything to anybody? Did the Texans do anything? It's one of what I feel like is a dozen new questions that came out of the Times article. Yeah, and... I'm, you know, when we talked about this before, kind of at the end, we were asking what the fallout from this is. Does there feel like a definitive difference between 22 and 24? And why? And part of that is what we talked about the other night from pro football talk and something that Jenny Vrentis writes about in this New York Times story as well. The payment of $5,000 to the person who ran a salon where several of the accusers work. And it's alleged that that owner knew that Deshaun Watson was seeking sexual gratification during massages and did not tell her masseuses, took a payment from him to facilitate that and set up her massage therapist to be put in those positions. And she pled the fifth when asked about the text messages between her and Deshaun. He claims he wanted to help her business because he's a good guy. That's why he gave $5,000 to a random massage parlor salon. I should say, because parlor implies illicit behaviors, which were not being offered and were not part of the deal of what those women did for a job. And again, I think, Fitz, there are a lot of people that roll their eyes and will say, everyone's so naive. Of course, this is what they were in for. They'll, they'll attack the credibility of the women in these cases, arguing that people who are massage therapists know that that's what people know. <laughs> Illicit massage is illegal in the United States. So when Deshaun Watson's attorney went on the radio and said happy endings are not illegal, he was wrong. It is not legal in the United States. It is not legal according to the uh, credentials and everything else that massage therapists sign. Perhaps that's partly why he went to some uncredited, uncredentialed therapists, uh, because technically you are not allowed to engage in any sex acts with your clients. Um, But I, I mean, Fitz... Part of the thing that stands out to me from all of this is at what point does this sort of water that's filling in this cup finally overflow to where it's just too much? The details are too disgusting, the specifics too real, the numbers too big, the accounts too similar for people to shrug it off, whether that's the Browns or the NFL. Yeah, and that's the big question I think that we're going to have to get an answer to sooner than later because. I'll go back to what we reported uh, as a network and across the sports world talked about, what, about a week and a half ago, that the NFL finally met with Deshaun Watson, which was supposed to be the indication that they were at or near the end of their investigation. That's at least the sense of the timeline everybody had. Now we get this article. uh, Since that has happened, we had a 23rd and 24th lawsuit. Now we get this article showing so many other accusers I have to look across the board and say, okay, how many of these people have spoken with the NFL? We don't have an indication of that yet. But the other part of it is the Browns say that they did a thorough investigation and that they talked to Deshaun and that they were very comfortable Mm -hmm. with everything. Well, did they know all of this information? Because if they did and they were so comfortable handing him guaranteed money, frankly, I'd be shocked. that, That would be a shocking admission to me. So 
if they weren't aware of it, then what does that do with the relationship between the player and the team that was supposed to be at least uh, on a built on a foundation of honesty in that moment? That has to be incredibly important. If I'm hiring you to do something and we sit down and say, let's have a real conversation about these accusations and you are not forthcoming with me, why would I trust you in anything after that? That permanently damages our relationship. So either the Browns and Deshaun are going to have to figure that portion of this out or somebody's lying about something along the way, and that's equally as troubling. So I don't think there's any scenario where you just brush off the new information that we're finding and move about the cabin. That, that just can't happen. Of course not. Um, of course not. I, I just think the question is, what kind of calculations did the Browns make about the deal that they were giving him and the potential fallout from these cases? When they learned that the original... Uh, accusations would not be taken to criminal court. Did they shrug and think, okay, we're fine with a civil case? Whatever comes down from that, even if he's found liable and pays them off, are we okay taking the PR hit on that, suspend him for a couple games, manipulate the contract so that uh, his $1 million salary for the first year is, is you know all that he suffers, and then we've got our franchise quarterback for the next however long. And he's back whenever he sits out, however long the NFL decides. Is that the decision that they made? And did they make that decision with only part of the information? Because who knows how much Deshaun and his lawyers presented them with potentially believing that not all of it would come out, potentially sticking to the original story he had, which was that he was seeking traditional massage, which has already now been updated to, okay, he was seeking traditional massage and he occasionally was seeking sexual gratification, which has then been updated to, okay, yeah, he did text a woman and, and ask, you know, apologize for making her cry, but he didn't know why she was crying. It certainly wasn't because he had tried to force himself on her, right? I mean, as this keeps moving on, you have to wonder what the original story the Browns were given was, how much truth came out, and whether they just said, all right, well, we feel pretty confident that we'll still get six or seven good years out of him, and we're such a disaster of a franchise that we're willing to just take it. I cannot imagine. It's Payne and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. I, I cannot even begin to fathom what the how you could read the report and I, I would challenge anybody like go in and read it just with an open mind read it and when you see some of the just detail of what he the positions he put himself in and then asked the the masseuse to massage him while he was in different yoga poses like it's disturbing to say the least to say the very least it's uncomfortable it's a difficult read and I said it earlier, I'll say it again. For anybody that's ever gotten a massage, I cannot imagine the horrifying feeling of realizing that you thought you were in a legitimate massage place and now you're not in a legitimate massage place. Like for me personally, as somebody that's had a lot of massages in my life, I can't imagine what that would feel like. I, However awkward that would feel and terrible that would feel for me, it has to feel a thousand times worse to be the person that's in that room just doing your job and all of a sudden you realize that you're being put in this situation by what multiple people in the report said was somebody they just didn't either didn't feel comfortable saying no to or suddenly felt scared right. because they were in a room alone with. Like, well, these and, are and, factors that are real for them. And potentially part of the reason he sought out some of these women, either if they were the business owners themselves or if they worked um, individually, which there are a lot of um, massage therapists, particularly during the pandemic. I had such a terrible ache in my shoulder that finally about... I don't even know how long, probably 13 months into the pandemic, I had a massage therapist come to my house and I opened all the doors and windows and like basically got a massage halfway outside to keep the airflow just in case wearing double masks. And But if you're a woman 
in those situations, and I'll tell you that I personally request a female masseuse every time. I do not have male massage therapists anymore. I had a circumstance where one asked me about my job during it, and I knew that he knew who I was. And that really grossed me out. I just didn't like that. I'm naked on a table, and someone's touching my body, and I'd, that's extremely vulnerable position to be in. And after that, when I would have a male assigned to me, anytime it felt like they were going too close to certain areas or maybe I hadn't had a massage, that I would tense up and I wouldn't enjoy it. And I just, I just decided. And that's not to say that can't happen with a woman, but it just makes me more comfortable. So imagining being at my home with a professional athlete who is in great shape and who potentially is threatening me with NDAs or who is, you know, not taking no for an answer when he suggests sexual acts, like that's terrifying. I, I, and I don't know how to make men understand if they've never been in a position where they felt sexually threatened, just how awful that is. Yeah, well, uh, you don't, God, it just, we just got to be decent human beings. Read, read this, read this, follow the evidence. Don't just follow the evidence, read it, and be a decent human being. And I think most of us come to the same conclusion on this. This is, this is problematic and it's not going anywhere. It needs to be addressed. All right. We'll continue giving you all the updates we get on that. We'll also give you the updates as the Rangers and Lightning are about to have the puck drop. But there are changes coming to the NBA Finals. What will they be and what impact will it make? We'll ask an expert next. It's Main and Fitz on ESPN Radio. Man, such a busy night in sports that we haven't dived too much into the NBA Finals. Game three tomorrow night. So let's get into it here. Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM, Channel 80. Sometime Fitz, I'll tell you about the time I saw Prince in a room of just 300 people. God. He had at least 20 people on stage with him. Tiny little venue, all playing brass band stuff. And then just 300 of us in the crowd. Supposed to start at 11, started at 1. Mm. It was magic. Let's start to Tim Legler, ESPN NBA that. analyst. Tim, happy <laughs> Prince's birthday. Let's talk some NBA. Um, I want to start with the question I asked Vince Carter last night. And he agreed with me in saying, after the first two games, do you have a clear idea of who has the edge in this series all right real quick though first i got to give you a prince story i saw prince yeah. madison square garden guys and prince played uh backup guitar for the act before him unbeknownst to the crowd what? he had a hoodie on he was basically in disguise playing a song and they did a lap around the arena madison square garden he was in the back and as they went up the steps back onto the stage he turned, flipped the hood back, and it was Prince. And then he Amazing. disappeared down into the stage. And, and obviously, the place they blew the roof off the building. And then he came out like 20 minutes later and did his thing. Amazing. I, just had to I get love that, that. that. So people were I feet mean, away and not touching him, not screaming. Not, and, can oh, you also, like, I can't imagine being in the opening act and knowing the Prince, like, who is, uh, is, is underrated as a guitar player. Oh, one and of the greatest ever. Right. Uh, absolutely. And he's just sitting in on my set, too. Like, I just can't. Like, you <laughs> yeah, just I think, be, listen, uh, I, and I'm having a, it's, it's been a while. I'm trying to remember. I, it might have been Earth, Wind, and Fire. I'm trying to oh, remember, wow. honestly, cool. who it was. But, Sweet baby Jesus. But it was, like, yeah, it was, it was, it was mind blowing. Most talented person I've ever seen live. That I had to get awesome. that in. Okay, <sighs> so who's got the edge? Uh, I think Golden State does, and he, and I know that a lot of people aren't looking at that way. I'm a little bit surprised at the way people have reacted to Boston basically having one huge quarter in San Francisco. I mean, let's be honest. The first halves of these games, it's been a razor thin margin. Golden State has outplayed them significantly three out of the four quarters in the second half. Now, they got smoked in game one in the fourth quarter by a barrage of threes, and they, they kind of got pushed out 
uh, on the other end of the floor. And I think they started to press a little bit. They were trying to hit home runs uh, when the game was starting to get away from them a little bit. But if you look at, for the most part, the way Golden State has operated, you you got Steph Curry as the best offensive player in this series. He has been the best player. And you haven't even had the luxury of Klay Thompson getting going, Jordan Poole, who would look really terrified in the first game, and he looked much more comfortable game two, but still not close to full throttle for him either. And despite that, they have not been able to really deal with or contain Steph Curry. So I look at it like this. I think Golden State is doing what they need to offensively, knowing that that is going to come from Clay and Poole, and particularly Clay Thompson. So I actually think Golden State's in good shape. I think they're going to get a split in Boston, and it's going to become a best-of-three series with two of those in the Bay Area. So what difference does it make to this series going back to Boston? Well, I think what's going to happen initially is going to be, you know, an adrenaline-fueled, defensive, manic type of performance out of Boston defensively. Um, I think what you could get is Golden State can hurry up a little bit. They can get loose with the ball, turn it over, no ball security. Boston gets out and transition a little bit. I think some of their role players – uh, will be better at home than they were out there. You know, other than that barrage you got out of Horford and, and Smart, I mean, they didn't do much at all in game two. I think those guys will be better. You'll get an unexpected source of offense from somebody like Robert Williams or Pritchard. That's one of those guys that typically happens at home. So I think Boston, you've got to give them the edge, changing venues at 1-1 in game three. Um, but I think they're going to have a hard time getting both. Tim Legler's with us here. You can follow him at Legs ESPN. How do you explain the mathematical equation that was Jason Tatum's plus minus in the last game and how much weight are you putting into it? Worst ever in the NBA yeah. finals. Yeah, yeah. No, not not much. I, listen, I am I am a huge non-believer in plus minus. The, the only plus minuses that matter to me are groups of five. That's what I want to know. If I know what groups and what units have a positive plus minus, um, and, and, and over the course of a season, you track that kind of stuff. I want to know what units play well together. That tells me something. Individual plus minus, sometimes guys get caught up in a bad shift, man, a bad run, a bad stretch. You're out there. You know, and look, in the case of Jason Tatum, obviously, he's going to have his imprint on that more than like a role player that can get caught up in a really bad plus minus with a particular group because he's got the ball more and he's just more impactful. But for the most part, some of that stuff's out of your control as a player. So I don't, I don't put a lot of credence into it. I'm more about the units plus minus. I can track whose plays well together, um, and it helps me with my rotations a little bit. Legs, uh, we, we only got about a minute here with you, but give me what your message would be to the Celtics on how to fix what's going on in the third. Man, that's a tough one because it's, it's more about Golden State than other teams. I just think, it, look, by now, you have to be up on your toes, right? you got to have the hair up on your neck when you come out of the locker room and understand that they're going to play with a fast pace. And, and typically, the guy that triggers a lot of that is Steph. And, look, he's been great in two games. I think you're at the point, if you may, Udoka, you may start to see a couple of adjustments on him. Um, I don't you – know, Steph Curry is really bothered more by really long-armed defenders or really quick defenders. That's not Marcus Smart. He's a physical defender, um, and I think you might have to run some blitzes at Curry in that third quarter, get the ball out of his hands a little bit. Do not let him come out 
and get that flurry going that he loves to, and everybody feeds off of that on his team. Um, it's an energy thing, and it's a preparation, I think, thing. And you can't make mistakes defensively in the first four or five minutes of the third quarter. It's really what it comes down to. They know what they have to do. They've got to execute it. Legs, I'm, I'm wondering if you think Ime Adoka has done the right job, and you've got about 30 seconds or so to talk about the adjustments that he's made to what the uh, Warriors are doing. Yeah, I th- listen, I, I'm a huge, huge fan of his. Like, he's incredibly bright, intense. I love how vocal he is throughout the game. He's up. He's not sitting back watching the action like we are at home. He's up. He's got his hands on every play, every possession. He's got something to say. I love it. So, no, I think the adjustments have been good. I, th- I think right now, though, you may need to do a little bit more against Steph. Um, I-, I think he's operating in a pretty free space. And he didn't shoot well the other night, but he got good looks. I think it's time to maybe see if Clay Thompson and Jordan Poole with the state that particularly Clay Thompson is in right now mentally, are they able to now carry that team if I decide to play on the high side of Steph, deny him the ball, face guard a little bit, hit him with some blitzes on ball screens, you know, adjust in that way to target him a little bit more? That might be the next big adjustment. But look, Ime yeah. Doka is as sharp Good as stuff. they come. He'll, 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 Thank he'll you, do Legs. Necessary. Appreciate the insight. Looking forward to game three. Thanks, more Legs. Spain and Fitz you got next. It. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, and Sirius XM. Channel 80, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, presented by Progressive Insurance. My allergy voice is uh, holding up so far, Sarah. I feel very, very good so far. Like, it, it, you know, it's made it. I, I, I say I mean, that. I put that into the universe. We're not done yet. Don't celebrate with a lap to go. Well, I mean, I feel like that's, that's definitely – like, if there's anybody that's going to celebrate with a lap to go and find a way to lose the race, it's this guy. So, like, we all know that. Uh, so, one thing that I'm always open and honest about is what I don't know. And uh, when I find issues to be particularly complicated, I think one of the values of this show is that Sarah and I won't shy away from having real, honest conversations about all of the nuance. And that's – what I think we both hope makes Spain and Fitz different sometimes. And that, I think, is Im- important to preface the conversation we're about to have when it comes to what's happening in golf right now. Because for anyone that hasn't seen the news, the U.S. Open has decided to allow Phil Mickelson, Mickelson and any other eligible player compete, which includes Dustin Johnson. That is uh, stunning to some because those are two names that I just mentioned that will be competing in the rival live tournaments uh, starting next week in London and live being completing a competing entity. It had been made clear that those players would not be allowed to participate in PGA events. Now the USGA has confirmed uh, this is a quote regarding players who may choose to play in London this week. We simply asked ourselves this question. Should a player who had earned his way into the 2022 U.S. Open via our published field criteria be pulled out of the field as a result of a decision to play in another event? And we ultimately decided that they should not. The complication here is that Live isn't just another event. It's another event that has been funded by a country in Saudi Arabia that uh, is, has done awful things to people. And so now you have this interesting term. And I am saying interesting because it's not a term I knew a lot about before we started these conversations of sports washing, uh, Sarah. And I think mm-hmm. that's important to start there because for anyone that's not familiar, it's basically a way that countries that do awful things can try and hide behind sports to improve relationships around the world and be seen differently. And that is a nuance to this conversation that we're having. 
Yeah, it's very nuanced because first there's the decision by the golfers, Phil Mickelson in particular and Dustin Johnson, who are some of the most high profile and were paid large sums of money to go golf over there and then encourage fellow players to do so as well. Uh, a decision, in fact, that cost Dustin Johnson a major sponsorship, Royal Bank of Canada ending his uh, sponsorship with them because of his decision to play in the Live Golf Invitational Series. Um, there's that element of should these players be helping facilitate and uh, and make, you know, authentic and important and meaningful this this golf tour. Secondarily, you have the PGA's response to it. Are they being moral when they say you're not allowed to do both or we're considering preventing you from doing both? Or are they trying to protect their own asset in that they've had a bit of a monopoly and haven't had to compete with a significant contender and challenger like this live tournament will be? Then you add in the USGA, which is deciding to allow these players to play for the U.S. Open that they had already qualified for. They are all making decisions, and many of them are made with their pocketbooks, and that can't be ignored, particularly when you look at the connections that the PGA has to China, another country that has massive civil rights abuses and atrocities going on right now. And of course, the U.S. is never immune to conversations about bad business. All of this comes together to leave us in this spot where, in the end, for some of the players who went over there, which doesn't include Tiger Woods, who was offered a massive amount of money to make this move, uh, it comes down to, I'm okay with this as long as I make more money. And Kevin Van Valkenburg, our ESPN senior writer, was on Canty and Carlin basically saying as much. There are going to be players out there who watch to sort of see what the backlash is and what the tournament uh how it was run and i think to be honest you're going to get more guys who are interested in joining because the money involved is just too great and they're going to want to make more money and, and have to work less uh, hours essentially is what the the appeal of the league is to a lot of them and uh in the end the money's going to talk you're talking about you know, $150,000 for essentially last place here, uh, you know, $4 million to the winner, you know, guaranteed sort of payouts, no cuts, uh, only three rounds. A lot of it's going to be appealing to a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, it's it's clear why they would go over there. And the various answers in the presser today, Fitz, revealed that some of them were going to face it head on or at least close to head on by at least acknowledging the murder of Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi. And some were going to just say, me golfer, me dumb, me not smart, know how to talk about this, which is almost a direct transcript. I believe it was actually, I'm a golfer, I'm not smart, I just put a ball in a hole, uh, which is one way to ignore having to talk about things. Well, and look, I think part of what is interesting, it's it's always weird when you're spending somebody else's money. So it's easy for a lot of people, myself included, to turn around and say, you know, why, why would you even consider this? But to the point that it was just made, uh, by Van Valkenburg, like that's a lot of, of money. You're talking about, as uh, I mentioned last week on this show, the average pot is about 1.75 times the current pots, but there are less golfers competing for it. So everybody involved in these situations can uh, and will make more money. I would love to sit here and say how I, uh, that I know how I would approach a situation where I had the opportunity to make boatloads of generational wealth that I, at an even higher level, different level, but I'd have to work for bad people to do it. And that's part of what where the difficulty in this conversation comes to, because you're talking about where's the sports obligation when it comes to the, the high ground and the moral ground of, of what you're willing to accept and what you're not willing to accept. And that 
that also can be at times a slippery slope. That's why I think this is so difficult, trying to figure out what golf should do and what, what the PGA should do, not just to protect their own event, uh, but also to say, hey, we won't stand up and allow these things to happen, funded by these people. Mm-hmm. That takes a lot of people deciding that they're going to prioritize uh, morality over money, and that's not something that always happens in sports or entertainment. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. I mean, you're right, and this is a conversation that we have across all sports. What is the responsibility of athletes, coaches, teams, leagues to the greater good or at least to some sort of accountability for bad actors? We talk about this a lot in the NFL specifically because that seems to be the sport where there's most consternation about who has the power to decide when someone is held accountable. In the cases of something like Ben Roethlisberger, You don't necessarily need a criminal accountability for the league to decide that he has smeared the good name, and I say that in quotations, heavy quotations, of the NFL and punish him. Some people don't agree with that. Some people think that if the legal system does not find you guilty in a court of law, which is by far a much greater burden of proof to meet, then you should be able to do what you want. And I would argue that there are a whole lot of fans who would be disgusted with that approach for something like Deshaun Watson or Antonio Brown or Ben Roethlisberger or any number of other players, right? Because when you know that something has happened, even if the court system can't necessarily prove it, um, you want something to happen to make you feel like this league that trots out players, pays them tons of money and asks you to cheer for them has a check on their behaviors. And that's kind of what golf is having to figure out. How much do these golfers owe us when they are not playing an hour tournament Do they owe us the exclusivity of their talent? Do they owe us at least some modicum of care about the morality of those with whom they associate, whether that's sponsors or tours or otherwise? And I bet you a whole lot of people have very different feelings about that. Well, yeah, and I think, you know, for me, when you look at some of what you just mentioned, I think it's important to look at it and say personal accountability matters for the people that represent your sport. What gets difficult for me is, like, what happens when it's the people that write the checks to those people? And and that... That's tougher for me. Like, this is a very basic example. But, like, I don't, I don't know anything about who runs Cheesecake Factory. I just know I like cheesecake, right? And, like, maybe to a fault, I should know that. Like, you can also hide behind the, hey, I'm just a golfer hitting the ball behind. Like, it's not that simple. So the question is, you know, do, do, you, do many of us want to invest more effort in trying to figure out who's writing those checks and whether or not we're willing to support that portion of the business? And then also supporting the people that are taking those checks because when you're an athlete taking that check, you're not just taking the money, you're providing a service of promotion and that, that has to weigh on your conscience as well. So like, that's why I think all of this is so, uh, I haven't figured it out. I, I'm not, I, I, I'm trying to figure out, I'm still learning as we go. And I, I'm, I'm very open about that because I think there are so many different layers to it. Yeah, 100%. Um, and I think, it's something that they're reacting to in the moment as well. I mean, it certainly feels like Phil Mickelson made comments to the reporter who was writing the book about him, which ended up being perfectly timed to be released right around when all of this is blowing up. Um, And then I'm sure didn't expect the blowback that he got. He had to apologize to both sides because he talked about the Saudi Arabians that he's working with on this tour being quote, scary MFers who killed Jamal Khashoggi. But I'm really looking forward to the leverage that this will provide me and others for things that the PGA has previously denied us. I mean, he said it flat out like that. That feels feels dirty. Of course it does. He said the quiet part out loud. And then that (laughs) set off a reaction to this 
that has been probably the main reason there's been so much attention on this. If you didn't have that acknowledgement from him, and if it had been more under wraps, just a sort of, oh, we just want to see what this tour is about, people certainly would have brought up the connections and it would have been a big story. But that allowed you to know flat out that there's no way he could pretend he doesn't know that this is a conflict of interest and requires some serious cognitive dissonance. He said it, and now we know it. And so... I think the the PGA, the rest of the golfers, the media, everybody had to react in the moment so quickly to that, that as it develops, we'll see whether, you know, the sports washing works where eventually it just becomes something we take for granted and we get used to. I think about the Cutter World Cup and the atrocities happening over there as they prepare for the World Cup. And you ask, you know, by the time we finally get to that, are we going to have a resurgent in stories about it and then get interested in the soccer and stop talking about like literally, you know, hundreds of deaths and, and mm. the human rights issues over there? That's yet to be seen. Same, same with this golf in this tournament. Yeah, and one thing I pledge to everybody, I'll always be honest about what I don't know, and I'm going to try and figure out and learn more as we go along. That's all we can all do is keep our ears open and keep educating ourselves. ESPN Radio, presented by Progressive Insurance. Progressive is proud to team up with Hello Alice to support small businesses. Get access to small business resources and learn about small business grants at HelloAlice.com. Mental health in sports is an evolving topic. We'll continue to bring these conversations to the forefront. We'll do it next based on something Sarah did on her podcast that you have to hear you'll hear it next Spain and Fitz on ESPN radio Spain and Fitz the podcast uh happy birthday to Prince it's Spain and Fitz Sarah Spain Jason Fitz ESPN radio ESPN app Sirius XM channel 80 got game three of the NBA finals tomorrow we'll have a good preview show for you to get you ready for that but as we continue this uh I think pretty nuanced and heavy show a lot of a lot of heavy topics today Fitz uh, I wanted to talk about something that came up on my podcast this week Sometimes do that with something called Nod to the Pod. And I thought this conversation comes back to some of the stuff we've talked about on the show. And it was about mental health and sports. I talked to Kate Fagan about her book, What Made Maddie Run, and a specific case of a college runner who died by suicide, what she learned from talking about it and, and telling her story. I talked to uh, Molly Dickens, one of the founders of Ann Mother, about specific stressors on athlete moms and the different contracts and provisions that need to be considered as we see more and more women choose that and then return to play. And then Jessica Bartley, who is the senior director of uh, the Team USA and their mental health and wellness and performance. And I specifically asked her about the conversations that we have around Ben Simmons and whether we need to start considering talking about mental health or trying to learn to talk about mental health as deftly as we talk about something like, say, an injury. Is our mental health as out of our control because of genetics as something like how long our arms are or how fast we can run something you can work at, but you start from a certain baseline? And here's what Jessica Bartley said on my podcast. Here's this week's Nod to the Pod. I often use this model called biopsychosocial because it's such a mix of biological, psychological, and social influences that are going to create issues with mental health. And I think that it's really important, you know, I'm, I'm did a fellowship in eating disorders. And I think that some of what we're learning about eating disorders is there are some of us that are predisposed to disordered eating, eating disorders. And it's almost like a light switch. And mm. so you need the psychological, social influences to turn that light switch on and really kind of have someone slide into disordered eating, eating disorders. So someone could have the same social, psychological influences as the person sitting next to them. And because they have a different genetic makeup, 
they will not necessarily turn to eating disorders as far as coping or the the kind of behaviors that they use. And so it's really important to think of that combination of things that some of us are more predisposed to eating disorders, to alcohol issues, to um, depression and anxiety. So it is an incredible combination. And I've often thought it really helpful to think of this as a light switch. Um, that you have these psychological, sociological um, kind of influences that are actually what turns that light switch on and mm. off. Um, so it's really helpful to think of that. And I think for me, what's been most reassuring when thinking of that light switch is we know that light switches can turn off. And yeah. so again, we can actually fight that biology. And that's how I was also taught as far as eating disorders as well is you have tools that can actually overcome this genetic predisposition at times and that therapy or it could be medication and it could be just tools and skills that you're using um, turns that light switch back off and so that's where we think of all of these more on a spectrum instead mm -hmm. of you have this diagnosis you're not you're gonna be mentally ill or not um, i think that it's really important to think of things to be a little bit more complex than that. For more, please subscribe and listen to That's What She Said with Sarah Spang on your smart speaker or wherever you listen to podcasts. Yeah, and if you want to listen to the full podcast, you could check out all of the conversation. But Fitz, what I found interesting there was that means that potentially if he has whatever those set of things are that combine to create tremendous amounts of stress and an inability to handle uh, what's required, then he may not be fit for professional sports, but he also may be able to find the tools and the situations to turn on and off that switch and be able to come back and be a great player. But we also need to understand how to talk about it. Yeah, I, I think there's power in that knowledge, though. Like, so I can only I can't speak to anybody else's mental health, but I can speak through my my own therapy process. And once you start to figure out what you're I, for back, lack of a better term, what you're predisposed for, right? Like what you have mm -hmm. some sort of like leaning towards once you identify uh, i've always called them markers or it's always been taught to me as markers you start to realize okay this is something that creates a reaction for me so for somebody that that has dealt with a lot of manic issues in my family i'm aware of those tendencies for me so when you start to see something that spins you up the number of times you can say okay i know i know why this is happening i know why i feel this way and i know that i do have a tool chest that i can help sort of walk through step by step minute by minute through that you have to have such awareness to it, though, that that's the, there's empowerment in knowing that there's solutions. There's also you just have to have a constant awareness to it. And it's another factor for people that, for example, in, in sports or entertainment, if adrenaline is any sort of a, a, a mitigating portion of this, then you have to realize how to, to manage that at the same time. So all of these things are interesting factors that I think lead to athletes trying to figure out how to manage their personal health and their mental health at the same time that could be a real challenge yeah and you know i something that i talk about with kate fagan that we both say is having grown up as athletes and internalizing so much of the thought about weakness in sports or what it means to be weak or strong the stigmas around mental health and the idea that you just suffer through everything pain is just weakness leaving the body right like that's how you feel about sports that we grew up and Maybe we're less tolerant than we should have been about people who suffer from mental health issues because we're blessed and we took credit for that, right? As if there was a choice that we made that allowed us to be relatively even killed, relatively anxiety free, relatively happy. And I'm speaking mostly for me. Kate, you know, speaks about her own stuff, but I used to give myself way more credit for that. And now I'm aware of how lucky I am that my baseline 
is very different from somebody else's. And maybe I'm not predisposed for that light to flip and that switch to go when something happens, when a certain trigger or stressor arrives, I can work my way through it. And understanding that all of our baselines are different and that then we acknowledge when we're below it and need to ask for help or when we're doing well, that's, you know, that's part of this conversation that we have to have. And I think too many people don't want to first acknowledge just that little bit that we all start from a different spot because genetically we all got given an, a different thing to start with. Yeah, some people are born with the genetic man, I got great abs and some people aren't right. right. Some people I didn't get the abs. With, I got the yeah. brain. I, but, definitely did. I worked hard at them. Never, never showed up. <laughs> but that, but that stuff's real. And I always think about that. You know, for me, the hardest part when I stopped touring that I didn't realize at the time was that I lost an emotional release in music that sort of helped me deal mm. with a lot of <laughs> things. I didn't know that till I wasn't touring anymore. So I think you start thinking about just all the different factors that the guys like Ben Simmons are dealing with constantly in their life, trying to figure out how to manage the emotions. It's just, if, if you're predisposed to it, it's just a challenge that you have to face every yeah. single day. Well, I'm glad you found the weed. Thanks for listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. You can listen to the show weeknights at 7 Eastern on ESPN Radio and on the ESPN app.